The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome to Museum Life. This is Carol Bossert. Thanks for joining us today, joining me today. Uh, I have a great guest uh, for you. It was a a gentleman that I met at this past... uh, conference in uh, May, the American Alliance for Museums, and Josh Franco and I uh, were sitting at the same table in a workshop, and I just enjoyed meeting him so much. I then was able to actually take a tour of his uh, collection at the, uh, the archives, and while I know that this is radio, and you're only going to have to imagine some of the great art that Josh talks to you about today. Day. It really is so fabulous. I wanted to bring it to your attention. Uh, so, Josh um, Franco is the curator of Latino art at the Smithsonian's Museum of American Art. So, archives, not the museum. I'll get that right. Josh, <laughs> why don't I just introduce you and let you tell us all about exactly what your title is? I'm so sorry, but welcome to the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, No problem. So I'm the Latino Collection Specialist at the Archives of American Art. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. And well, uh, so what, um, I mean, essentially, you play a curatorial role, even though you're in an archives and not a museum. Is that, do I understand that correctly? Yeah, that's um, correct. And you know, internally in our office, you know, we I'm part of the curatorial team. Great, wonderful. Yeah. So, so we understand the kind the kind of role that you have. Uh, so, what? Uh, why did you decide to become an art curator? Um, well, yeah, it's a little. So, I mean, I did my degrees in art history. Um, and, well, let me just clarify, too, that we don't actually work with artworks at all in the archives. Um, we work with documents related to art. So the way I think about it is everything we collect, which includes, you know, personal correspondence and sketchbooks and photographs and all kinds of ephemera that doesn't fit in a category, um, all of that material that we collect helps to close the distance between people and artworks that they go to the museum 
you know, to see just a block over. Uh, you know, the archives is located just a block from the um, Museum of American Art uh, at the Smithsonian. Um, but so why did I decide to become, how did I end up in this role? Yeah, <laughs> and, yes. Yeah, so, I, you know, I was in school. I did a you know, master's PhD um, with the kind of assumption that that would lead to an academic career, you know, to teaching and researching um, in university. Uh, but while I was in graduate school, since starting in January 2013, I began working at Judd Foundation in New York City, it's the home and studio of the artist Donald Judd. Um, and the foundation, as probably many of your listeners know, is split between New York City and Marfa, Texas. Um, and Donald Judd himself passed away in 1994, but his children and a very dedicated board and staff have worked to... You build the foundation up and eventually open it to the public um, in New York in 2013. So it's a beautiful cast iron building with all of Judd's collected collection of art, and, you know, his own and many of his peers. Um, and the house is preserved the way it was in 1994 when he passed away. And I was um, of the first and still the only group of artist guides that were hired in the building. And it was our job, after a very intensive training process, to guide visitors through the building, talking them through not only the art context, but the neighborhood context, you know, the, what's the transformation Soho has gone through in New York as a neighborhood. Um, but, of course, the art inside, as well as Judd's furniture, a lot of the, um, and then collections of other objects he kept, and the history of the building itself, which is a beautiful building. Um, so I did that for two and a half years, and I think... That was a really nice bridge between kind of my academic training and where I am now because it was all about, um, you know, research was definitely involved. We did a lot of research to prepare, but the main impetus of the job was to kind of be the interface between people coming in with, you know, all levels of knowledge from knowing nothing, never heard the name Donald Judd to, you know, having read everything he ever wrote, um, and then being a kind of interface between them as an audience and the the building as a space and the art the artworks there and the objects there um, and kind of filling in the story for them. So I think that job uh, really prepared me for this, which is that. Um, but now instead of one house in New York, it's the whole country <laughs> and Latino artists from the whole country uh, that I help close the distance between for people, for audiences. That's that's great, and you know what I think is um, is particularly interesting. At, it is that you you do bring uh, to your job the academic training, uh, which is is necessary mm -hmm. to provide context for your work. But but you did work with in in front of the camera, so to speak, or uh, with yeah. with visitors. And I think that that's so critical, particularly for uh, curators today, you know, collection specialists, curators, to mm -hmm. understand that we're at the the um, the field is asking so much of curators now, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, and you seem to have both uh, sides covered very well. So I'm sure this is just the beginning of a of your fabulous career. I, I wanted to ask you, just I'm curious whether you, uh, you know, so you worked at, at the Judd Judge Foundation, but do you, were you exposed to museums as, as, a, as a child, perhaps, you know, on a school field trip or with your family? I mean, do you have any uh, museum memories? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, 
So ironically, I grew up in West Texas where Donald Judd has a very large presence if you're pointed to his presence. I didn't know he was that the work, his collections or his spaces were there until I was in my early 20s. But growing up in West Texas, I was um, exposed. My grandparents and my parents um, took me around to a lot of the kind of small, you know, like a lot of rural towns have that small kind of house museum situation somewhere in town. Um, so there's a lot of those in West Texas, you know, the Pecos County Museum in Marfa, the Fort Stockton Historical Museum, um, Odessa, where I grew up, has the Parker House and another, you know, historical museum there. Um, so they, t- my grandparents, especially my maternal grandmother, was really into those. They were always part of our you know, kind of weekend trips sometimes or things like that. And a lot of our families been in that area for a long time. Um, so occasionally, like, there's a photograph I know of my grandfather at um, Sol Ross State University in Alpine, Texas, in their kind of historical collection. And um, so occasionally, like, family members, ancestors of ours will pop up in those things. But it was all about, you know, those, those museums in West Texas are often about the objects. And those objects are... Uh, Typically, things people think of when they think of like frontier frontier life in the West. Um, there's a lot of uh, saddles and spur boot spurs and blankets and weavings. Um, so I grew up going and seeing a lot of those things and having those kind of be the centerpiece of stories of histories that my grandparents would remember. Um, yeah. That's great. Thank you. Uh, I mm-hmm. I appreciate I appreciate those those personal memories. I, I I will say that I have not run into anyone on on this show. And of course, it's a self selected uh, or a, a personally selected group, uh, hand curated uh, guests on Museum Life. But I have never run into a guest who didn't have a, a at least one fond, if not many, fond memories of uh, museums going with their 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 families and and having that connection of a great of being someplace that was meaningful as a as a family as well as uh, exploring the history of a region or, mm-hmm. or a, an area. And I think that that is something that we can't lose sight of in this next generation of making sure that we're accessible to everyone in our community because those children and their families who are coming through today uh, really are going to be the museum professionals of, of, uh, of the future. And I don't mm-hmm. think that that's overstating it too, too much. So that's another Another reason that I'm so fascinated with the work you do now. Mm-hmm. Um, this next set of, of questions you you clarified for me uh, at the beginning, but but I think it it bears repeating mm-hmm. that the archives is interested in the historical documentation of right. a uh, of, of the artist, not the actual completed works. Right, is, yeah, that's correct. Exactly right. Yeah, a good way to think of it is we collect everything that an artist generates, you know, speaking materially, um, in their practice that is not the final artwork. Um, So we're a good resource when, you know, if somebody, we can literally answer the question, you know, how did that get made? A lot of, like, we can, we might have a series of, you know, a handful of sketches that lead up to a final form of some iconic painting that's hanging in the museum. Um, so you can actually you know, see the beginning of an artist's thinking, uh, you know, the shape that began as one in one way that became something else in the final work, and you can see all the steps in between. Uh, but you can also, you know, there's so much, 
outside of directly to the artwork itself, there's so much material here that um, talks about artists' lives uh, that shows you how they live their life. So, you know, one thing, artists are constantly struggling still today with how to make a living <laughs> off their work and their career. Um, and then that, I sometimes think of the archives as a how-to for artists, and I encourage them to come see, like, you know, how did how did this artist who's very famous and successful now negotiate their day jobs and their practice, you know, their studio practice time, or how did they uh, work with flipping real estate um, as a way to make income while they, you know, were making their art. Um, you know, all those, some things that might seem very boring, like real estate documents and tax statements, um, could actually be quite helpful if you're an artist really thinking about the logistics of how you lay your life out. I found that fascinating, and we'll get into some examples Mm -hmm. uh, later, but, but you know, uh, as someone who came to uh, understand and appreciate art uh, later in my life, uh, I was was more involved in in the sciences uh, and history museums. Uh, mother would take me to art museums, but she didn't know a lot about it, so she was always a little nervous and hesitant. Mm. And I, I and I think I, that sort of came to me. But certainly, as a as a professional in the field, I have been so. Uh, lucky to meet people like you and other colleagues and friends who have strength in, in uh, art history and, and knowledge of art that have shared with me and opened up the field, opened it up to me. But I, I must admit that often when when you go to a museum and you see the piece, it's only the finished piece, and you don't mm-hmm. get that backstory. Exactly. Yeah. And I was just um, so. I all right. So, stepping back just uh, just for a minute now, are the is your is the focus of the work that you're doing right now? Is it all living artists? Oh no, um, yeah, it's a mixture of living and deceased artists. So, just what was that last month? Um, early in June, or so early in June, a couple months ago now, I was in San Francisco with the daughter of um, a great art historian. Uh, who passed away a couple years ago, and you know, working with her. Um, it also, you know, it's, it's very. You know, we're working with veteran artists here who are really thinking about their legacies um, here at the end of their lives, and things can get very intimate very quickly and very serious. And uh, sometimes, with a living artist, but who you know may be sick and is just very self-aware, will have kind of difficult conversations about you know who's the person I'm going to speak with. If you know when they're no longer with us, um, so they like they act as their own kind of bridge uh, between the conversation we're having while they're with us and the conversation I'll have when they're not, because um, it is a process to collect these this material. It's not like artwork where there's one discrete object um, and you can see what you want and you can see what you don't as a curator. Uh, this is like you have to you get into like a lot it's a lot of paper for one. Um, and really look at things in detail and closely, and it's uh, the kind of sheer quantity is a different scale than when you're dealing with artwork, too. Um, so there's a lot of going through that as well. Wow. Um, I never quite thought about it that way, but that is, uh, you are meeting people at a very special time in their, in their lives. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a real privilege. Um, it's very much a privilege. It's like sometimes, you know, we try to think about ways to share that part because, of course, the materials provide a lot of information and a lot of, um, you know, food for thought for researchers and for people who come visit us. Um, but there's also the conversation that we, the collectors, get to have in the process that, you know, is not really simple to translate and the kind of more nuanced information we get in those conversations. Um, we're constantly thinking about how we can translate that and share that level uh, of information with our researchers as well, which you know, the most simplest way is, you know, I'm here. So if somebody comes in and is looking at a collection that I collected, um, if they come talk to me directly, I can usually add a little bit more uh, information just because I'm the one who had that conversation. Uh, but, you know, if and when I'm not here, that won't be the case. So we we do a lot of annotating. Uh, we do as much kind of note leaving. We have, you know, collector's notes we can leave in collections um, to maybe explain an object or a document that won't be so clear in its meaning. But if we leave just a little note about what the artist said about that thing, that document, um, you know, adds a much greater level of clarity. Wow, I never thought of that uh, either, that you are actually part of the story. Uh, yeah, it becomes that way, or our documentation becomes that, yeah. Wow, that's, well, and speaking of stories, I want to get into uh, uh, giving you an opportunity to share some of those particulars with our our uh, our listeners, but before I do, we are going to take a break, so I don't uh, further break your train of thought. So when we come back, more with Josh Franco, uh, talking about the work that he does at the Smithsonian Archives of American Art, and his special uh, passion for the work of uh, um, maintaining uh, the archives of uh, the Latino collection at the Smithsonian. We will be back in a minute. Stay tuned. More to come. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. 
To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life, and today I'm talking with Josh Franco, who is the Latino Collection Specialist at Smithsonian Archives of American Art. Uh, and Josh has been telling us about his work, how he got started in, in his uh, profession. And uh, right before we went to break, Josh was sharing with us you know, just the specialness of the work that he does, that he works with so many veteran artists, uh, that artists who are acknowledged uh, for their work and they real and their work is in museum collections and they really are uh, providing their materials in a way that can be used uh, for future generations to understand uh, their their body of work as well as just their lives and uh, so Josh could you perhaps share with us um, oh you know is something that one of your favorite experiences that you've had working with uh, mm-hmm. with one of these artists? Yeah, um, picking a favorite is very difficult, and I say that because one thing I realize more and more is how small the world is, and a lot of the artists I met with seem to be bound up in each other's lives when we get connections I never knew. Um, I think one of the really interesting ones, or more recent ones, uh, you know, the Chaz, Chaz Bohorka is, is an LA-based artist, and he um, he's kind of his mark, the mark of his practice is incorporating graffiti script uh, from the 40s, like urban East LA kind of 40s graffiti script produced by, you know, cholos and pachucos and um, lots of communities of color uh, on both coasts around the same time, but Chaz is based on the West Coast. Um, But he brought that form, that script, into his paintings, you know, fine artworks, I guess they'd be called. Um, Two of those paintings are collected here at the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Um, And he's, you know, his papers are fascinating, and I'm happy to talk about those, but the connection there, too, is that he's married to Christina Ochoa, who's one of the founders of Self-Help Graphics, um, which has been a really significant um, site of production for Chicano art and for East LA art uh, since the 70s. Um, but Christina herself was is from, she's lived in LA a long time, but she's was born and raised in San Antonio, um, which, you know, you're probably familiar with, uh, along with other cities like Albuquerque and Denver. Um, these are cities that where Mexican-Americans and Chicanos were really concentrated um, over the last century. Uh, and Christina, yeah, so she's from San Antonio, and she happened to grow up in the same north side neighborhood as Joe Lopez, who still lives in San Antonio with his wife, Frances, um, and whose papers I collected as well. And Joe, he's a painter himself, um, great painter, uh, but he also, his kind of one of his life projects was Gaista Gallery, um, which has been a very important space for a lot of emerging Chicago artists in the last 20, 30 years. Um, a space that if Joe hadn't opened a whole generation and geographical concentration of artists would not have had uh, what turned out to be a very important space in their careers um, to show and to gather and to, you know, to have their art affirmed by a community. 
um, and attendees at the gallery. So in collecting these papers, I find this out, you know, between Chaz Bohorquez, who's identified with graffiti script, um, with kind of surf and street, surf and skate culture in L.A., um, you know, Chaz has done commissions for, he has a really strong commercial design practice. We have a lot of, like sketches for his products for Disney and Reebok and Fendi. Um, but then because he's married to Christina and Christina is this great kind of bridge between the LA Chicano communities and the San Antonio Chicano, Chicano communities. Um, and she grew up with Joe Lopez, who's so such a respected elder in San Antonio. There's this, you know, total cross-country connection um, that these papers will bear out, and the connections to other institutions too. So, um, the self-help graphics papers are at an archive uh, in California, um, so people can see kind of uh, those records, and of course, Christina's role. Christina's very much a part of those records there. So I think more than a f- one favorite collection, I have favorite connections that happen, and they happen all over the place. Um, so I like really love that this emerged over the past few months, this kind of Christina, Chaz, Joe Lopez connection that also connects these two great cities in a way that you know, is not apparent to most people, I think. Yes, uh, I, that is interesting, uh, particularly, and, and certainly... You wouldn't you wouldn't know it if you were in a museum and you were right. you you would see them you would see those three artists in three completely different galleries uh, mm-hmm. most more than likely if it was cre- whether it was hung chronologically or thematically they are very very different uh, in their approaches and I it sounds to me that one of the things that you are doing uh, for uh, for the archives and and to support uh, the Smithsonian is really create is delving into these connections uh, that yeah. don't seem to have been caught up in the art history uh, yeah I think that's totally right yeah they happen and if I can share one more with you um, absolutely yeah the, yeah we I acquired Andres Serrano's papers in the fall uh, and one of the really exciting things there so Serrano is, I'm sure you know um, is most kind of popularly known, like probably his Wikipedia article is all about the controversy around his um, what's come to be known as known as the Piss Christ photograph um, from 1989, or early 90s. It kind of was exhibited and still is exhibited. Um, it was just shown in Brussels last year or earlier this year. Um, but that image was at the center of the whole Jesse Helms um, NEA funding kind of. Uh, What's the word? Censorship. Censorship controversies of the early 90s that really set off what we call the culture wars now, Um, along with other artists like Robert Maplethorpe and Sally Mann, who were put on the chopping block in that really rough moment. Um, But so so a lot of that's documented in the papers, and it's excellent, and any researcher would be really happy if they were interested in that moment to see the material. But other connections that came out, you know, that I see in Serrano's papers were to... um, the so Serrano was married for a few years to Julie Alt, whose papers are at the Fales uh, collection at NYU. Um, and Julie Alt was a central member of the group, the collective group material. Um, there's not a lot of apparent connections between Andres's practice and group materials practice when you look at you know when you look at the final works, um, and you know there's. 
It's, it's, so the question, the kind of research question it raises, though, because there's, of course, in the papers, a lot of correspondence between Julie and Andres, um, you, see the connect, you see all the connections that happen when people are married and live together for a number of years. Um, but I didn't know. I mean, I mean, it may be factually I knew that somewhere in my head that they were married for a time. It's a, just a biographical fact. But the papers cause me and hopefully cause researchers to start <laughs> thinking about those two endeavors, you know, group material and Andre Serrano's individual practice side by side, which maybe it has been done, not to my knowledge, but that would be a really interesting way to think about, you know, the 90s and late 80s in New York City, what was going on in art then, and making connections between these two practices that haven't been connected could be very interesting. Um, but the other connection that made was to the Lucy Lepard papers, which are one of our, you know, kind of uh, one of the larger collections we have, um, and Lucy Lepard is, of course, all over the art world since uh, the 60s. Um, she's a critic. She's been a curator. Um, she writes, she, you know, she hasn't put herself in any niches. She writes about, she's written about so much art and curated so much really varying kind of art. And uh, she has really, and she's, a great person and has all these great relationships, you know, personally with a lot of artists. Um, so in her papers, there are uh, letters from Julie Alt where Julie has done kind of crystal readings on the behalf of Lucy. Uh, so this is kind of intuiting or reading crystals and recommending crystals for Lucy to use to deal with whatever issues are happening in her life at the time. And uh, Julie lays these all out in the letters. Um, and then in Andres's papers, there are his, there's a group of his, um, what are they called? Natal charts, like his astral, astrological yes. charts. Uh -huh. Yeah. So all of a sudden you see this connection um, in the art world of the late 80s, 90s in New York, uh, this kind of underlying thread of esoteric practices for understanding one's life and for dealing with kind of traumas or incidents that come up for all of us. And that's probably one of the most fascinating things you know, I've seen so far too. Yes. Um, you, I, I guess so many things are, are coming to mind. One is that you, it, you, you are clearly on the cusp of generating this, this, uh, this primary documentation that uh, clearly has was not documented uh, in in the art world to date. Is it is it fair to say, Josh? And and please, you know, feel free to disagree with me. But is it fair to say that, like so many other areas of his of history, uh, historical documentation that uh, Latino artists, uh, Chicano artists were just simply no one was taking the time to document their work. And, and without your help, uh, this, this information would really be lost to us. Uh, well, I think maybe to a degree that's true. I think a lot of them were documenting themselves, um, but you know, of course, bringing those collections into the Smithsonian puts them at a you know, larger. The scale of visibility is increased largely, uh, so I think that's really important. And I, you know, I didn't come in with kind of a cold start. Um, there have been initiatives. So one of the things you know I should clarify too is that uh, my position is a. You know, it's a way to focus for a while. The let me say, how do I say that again? 
So while my position is the first dedicated staff position to collecting this material in the specific area, um, it's not the first initiative or the first kind of efforts the archives and the Smithsonian as a whole has put in uh, to this material. So since the late 90s, um, these initiatives have happened. And at the archives, there have been a couple of very strong initiatives in southern Florida and in Texas and kind of always ongoing in California um, around Latino arts around documents pertaining to Latino art history in the U.S. Um, so those have resulted. So when I came in, you know, there was already a nice kind of kernel collection of um, uh, a lot of oral histories, uh, especially from Florida and Texas, and a really few solid few good collections. One of the real anchors um, is the research materials, the Tomas Ibarra Frausto research materials on Chicano art. Um, and Ibarra Frausto has been and is a, a great kind of scholar, storyteller, art historian who's worked across the country on both coasts, in the middle, um, really dedicated a whole lifetime to documenting, generating, curating, inspiring art by Latinos in this country. Um, so having his papers here was a great, <laughs> you know, more than a great jumping off point and having those past initiatives and those oral histories. Um, one way I work, one of the logistical ways I work is just to see whose oral histories we have. Um, you know, and I kind of go through and the or some of the oral histories we have their papers, but oral histories are a way for us to also begin building a relationship towards bringing the papers in. So that was great for me because I just went through like whose oral histories do we have, but we don't have their papers. And that helps me identify who I reach out to. That answers a, another question that I that I had. I, in thinking about your work, it just seemed to me that it could be daunting. I mean, there are so mm. many artists, and and you know, so where do you begin? <laughs> yeah, it's daunting. Uh, it was it's a shock to go from you know a foundation based on one artist's legacy to the whole country, um, going from Judd to the Smithsonian. But yeah, I began, so that's one place I began looking at what's here already and then thinking about, uh, in a sense, completing those collections or pursuing them further. Um, you know, I also came in to, this was why it was so important to distinguish my title too, because there are other uh, curators at the Smithsonian and the other units who are focused this way as well. So there's Thayna Caracol at the National Portrait Gallery, uh, Carmen E. Carmen Ramos at American Art Museum, um, Margie Salazar-Porzio at American History, Steve Velasquez at American History, Mireya Losa. I'm just trying to say all my colleagues' names. They're very wonderful That's colleagues. Fine. Um, That's fine. That's wonderful. Yeah, so every, not every unit, but many units at the Smithsonian have a curator focused this way, and those are all kind of administered or in, in, in some way very strongly connected to the Smithsonian Latino Center, um, which was founded to address you know, these issues. Um, to build these collections. So I'm in conversation with them a lot. So, you know, when they're out collecting artworks, um, my great colleagues will often, it'll come up in conversation, the artist's papers and what they're thinking about doing. And if it seems right, um, they'll connect me and vice versa. If I'm speaking with an artist about their papers and it might be someone who one of the, you know, art curators has wanted to be in touch with, um, I can help out that way. So it's a team effort for sure. 
And that's an extremely good good point you made. That uh, you know, certainly we're talking about the Smithsonian, a uh, very large endeavor. But but mm-hmm. such endeavors don't happen just with one person. It requires uh, you know a, yeah. a, you know quite a quite uh, a group. And 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 through uh, that collective effort, we are as as. Uh, Visitors to the Smithsonian, as well as those of us interested in history of all all sorts, uh, we're the beneficiaries of that. Um, before we go on, we're going to take our second break, and when we come back, more with Josh uh, Franco. I am having a wonderful time uh, with this uh, with this wonderful uh, discussion today. Uh, I'm always so happy to learn things uh, that are so far from what my day to day activities are about. So, Josh, thank you so very much mm-hmm. for being being with us. We will be right back, so stay tuned. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert uh, for Museum Life, and today I've been talking with Josh Franco, who is the Latino Collection Specialist at Smithsonian Archives of American Art. Uh, right before break, Josh was reminding me that uh, while I am very new to knowing about the uh, Latino uh, collection at the archives, that the Smithsonian has been uh, focused, has a number of 
of uh, curators and collection specialists working on both uh, collecting art as well as the papers and background materials uh, to document and to uh, celebrate uh, the Latino Latino art and Latino contributions, and that is made possible in a a large part to the the creation of the Latino Center uh, at the Smithsonian. So thank you, Josh, for reminding me of, of that. I was wondering if you could um, just also give us a sense. You've mentioned you know, other archives and other um, uh, uh, collections around the country. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, how can you give us a sense, though, of how many um, uh, archives are there devoted to uh, specifically Latino artists? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the first one that comes to mind, um, it's very it's specific to Chicano. So at UCLA, um, there is the Chicano Studies Resource Center, um, which is a great archive, especially around Chicano artists in California. Um, and then there are other initiatives at UC Santa Cruz, UC Santa Barbara, uh, around this. You know, that's it's part of their larger archival holdings and collections um, in Texas at UT and at Texas State. Uh, there's some great, you know, the Gloria Anseldua papers are at the Benson Library, UT Austin, which are a great resource for this. Um, and then in New York, there are the, uh, we, how much, how much focus on art there are, there is not, not to the same degree, but there are resources like the Dominican Studies um, Research Center and the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College, um, and the other with the Dominican ones at Hostos Community College in New York. Um, and those are more generally about those cultures uh, and not so much visually art-focused as we are here. Um, but, yeah, yeah. So there's, you know, yeah, I'm not alone. <laughs> there are well, yes, you're not alone, yeah. but then it's not like there's one at every university in the country either. It, it does seem no, that it no. that, that there are there are pockets. Um, mm-hmm. I, um, this, what kind of uh, are you to the point yet that you're beginning to do uh, or have been doing collaborations then with uh, Central American uh, and South American archives mm. and artists as well? You know, is trying to look at. Um, uh, uh, cross-cultural connections? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are so, you know, when we're thinking about from the Smithsonian's perspective from the archives, um, they do, well, I'll just tell you, so the artists who have, it's usually a diasporic story or an you know, immigration story. Um, if they're coming from Central America, often with Chicanos, like myself, you know, my family never moved most of my family was there when Texas was Mexico, and then the border moved one day. Um, so it's not necessarily an immigration story. But uh, these others are, and that means they've lived most of their life. They, some of them came over when they were children and have lived all of their lives here, so they certainly qualify um, as donors to the Archives of American Art. Um, but those include artists like Jaime Davidovich, who's from grew up in Buenos Aires uh, until young adulthood. Now he's, you know, Jaime's in his 80s. Uh, he's a great artist. He works with television and tape and performance, and super fascinating. And people should look him up. Um, Paul Ramirez Jonas is his family's Honduran. Um, he has a strong connection still to Honduras. Uh, that's where he went to high school. 
things like that. Um, and then in the Caribbean, there's so, you know, New York has such a density of Puerto Rican communities and Dominican communities who still have such strong ties to their, you know, to the islands, um, but have lived the majority of their life in years uh, or, you know, have their children and their jobs in New York or the New York area. Um, so those are artists like uh, Julia Santos Solomon, Pepe Coronado, um, Ileana Garcia, Sherezade Garcia, Moses Rose. Moses was born in New York, um, but to a Dominican family and still has strong ties to his Dominican culture. Great. That yeah. very and and I would would think too. And what I'm reminded of particularly is the uh, uh, un, the the wonderful uh, collaborations that are starting up uh, between. Um, uh, Central and South American museum professionals and North American museum professionals uh, through uh, uh, various uh, a wonderful, wonderful conference that uh, happened a year ago, and I believe another one is planned uh, for uh, 2017. And as we become uh, not so separated by ge- geography, uh, I'm I'm seeing that there can be collaboration not only across uh, 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 ideas and, and concepts for uh, public programming and exhibitions and uh, different ways of we- reaching out to the communities, but perhaps it will also allow us to have a uh, richer collaboration uh, with, uh, with exhibitions and artists. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's so, an interesting time. Um, so I'm wondering, can you, you know, these the stories that you're telling us are so absolutely and incredible and 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 so interesting. And as you said, it's it's sort of peeking behind the curtain of mm-hmm. whether it's you know whether it is motivation with a big M or you know motivation with just the day-to-day life of these people and I, I'm wondering how do you how does the archives then collaborate say with the uh, the, the museums American Art uh, Portrait Gallery to to try to create uh, exhibitions that provide this sort of behind the scenes look mm-hmm. yeah as far as our exhibition programs go we all operate pretty autonomously um, but physically, uh, you know, we do have an exhibition, a dedicated exhibition space that's in the... So there's a building here in D.C. I'm sure you're familiar with, the, uh, the DWRC. Um, I always forget the first name. It's Dwight or Donald. And the, it's a man's name, D.W. Reynolds R. C. Center. And in that one building in the DWRC is housed the National Portrait Gallery the Smithsonian American Art Museum, and then one dedicated gallery, which is um, the Fleischmann Gallery, and that's the Archives Gallery. Um, And we have a curator of manuscripts on staff. It's Mary Savig, and she oversees the exhibitions in that space. Um, So, you know, visitors are certainly welcome and probably do. It'd be interesting to track that, make connections between those um, exhibition spaces that are, you know, on our end put together very autonomously. We work um, independently in designing and placing our exhibitions. Uh, but it's a really good question and um, something we could think about more, about how visitors connect those. 
Well, I think it's particularly, uh, I was struck in our first segment when you were talking about the importance of the archives and, and the papers and even the most mundane things uh, mm-hmm. can lead to insights into how this this artist balance their lives as you know it it's no secret artists don't make a lot of money uh and they have to support their families and eat and do all those those things i mean it's not uh it it's not the romantic life that uh it uh it's it does portrayed in movies or books so you know it seems to me that that some of the things that you are uh uh preserving uh, but also documenting uh, could be so uh helpful to um young people today aspiring artists you know, uh, it, mm-hmm. I would think yeah. it would be very daunting uh, to be in a museum and you see the works of some of these wonderful people uh, and um, you know Serrano's work uh, and, and others and just you sort of forget that they had to start somewhere yeah yeah definitely um, they did it's, it might be a good like it should be maybe part of art school for people to come look through these papers and decide if this is really um the life they want, because you do see the difficulties. I mean, you very much see the rewards, too. Um, but you definitely see the difficulties. So yeah. here's, a que- here's a question. Mm-hmm. I, you, uh, you, you mentioned that, that there are a number of oral histories, that that was mm-hmm. a project that the archives has, you know, has started and you have now you know, begun to expand. But what happens as you start uh, looking at artists who are, let's say, came of age in, um, you know, the 90s and, and the aughts, um, and they don't have papers, they have emails? Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we, have, we are on top of that, Carol. <laughs> um, we have a whole team dedicated to collecting born digital material, um, you know, they have to do, I really admire what they do because they have to do a bit of double work and that they are not, you know, they have to educate us, the collectors, so that we can go out and educate our donors about how we collect that material. Because um, it's a daunting thing to tell someone, like, yes, we can and will take your whole email account, you know, if you're willing to give it to us. Um, but the process for editing email accounts, uh, you know, we don't have, the practices in place so firmly yet. And that's not just us, that's the entire field, um, you know, of archives is trying to figure that out. Because uh, when you're editing, you know, paper collection, you just go through sheet by sheet and it's, you know, it's tedious and it's work, but it's very clear. It's a little harder to do that with emails, especially with the sheer kind of amount of emails that we all get these days, um, which, you know, 90% of are not significant in any way. Right. Right, I would I would yeah. assume that some of that is is coming. Uh, you know, we're we're being informed quite a bit by the uh, professionals who work on the presidential libraries because, of course, mm. that's something that they have had to 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 deal with. So, um, so you, right now, your your primary work is is looking at you know still just the paper of people who knew they had they they might be famous one day and they should collect they should save their papers. 
Uh, it's usually, it's not typically because they knew they'd be famous. It's stuff that, I think it's a lot of times it's stuff that we all keep. Um, but there are artists who, not because they knew they'd be famous, but because they just kind of are naturally um they kind of have natural archives brains. And here I'm thinking of an artist like Paul Ramirez Jonas, who, um, and Paul certainly still has, he's one of the younger artists I'm working with. You know, he certainly has, I hope, a few decades left still. Um, but he, he's one of those artists who came of age in the 90s. And so his papers, and his not only his papers, but his way of thinking about them grew along with uh, the idea of digital material. Um, and Paul's also very organized, like a very, very organized person. Uh, so his archives, and this is like very, very rare, his archives are almost in a state where we could just take his boxes and put them on our shelves, you know, almost, which is, that just doesn't ever happen. Um, they're organized chronologically and by project, which is amazing. Um, and then the same, he took the same kind of approach to his emails, just of his own accord over the last few years. He's um, not only organized his emails, you know, in their accounts, but he's created separate folders and separate um, files on his hard drive to organize these and label them well. So he was in town a few weeks ago, um, and while he was here, he was here for an event, um, but we took the chance for him to sit down with uh, a person from our digital, you know, who d- man- helps manage our digital materials and um that conversation was great. It was really helpful for me. It was so Paul brought his laptop, showed uh, her how his files were organized. Um, she told him basically with, with the same thing I said with his physical papers, like, "Wow, you this is this is the ideal way um, emails can be organized um, from our perspective." Um, but you know, she gave him what advice she could and what she had, uh, which was very helpful for him. So, yeah, we're learning and having artists who came of age, you're right to point to that time period exactly, who came of age in the 90s, who kind of were there for the beginning of email and so saw it from day one happen um, and started organizing it are great. It's a great thing. And we're, you know, having these case studies is really helpful and will really hopefully help formulate the kind of codified um, uh, plan. <laughs> yeah, hand over to artists in the future. Yeah. Well, and I think it what it, what it points to me too is that uh, being a uh, a specialist, whether or a curator at an archives or or in a museum, uh, the field is con- constantly changing and it is constantly having to to uh, deal with uh, new new challenges and so for mm-hmm. listeners who are are listening to this and you're thinking that that going into uh, an ar- uh, an archives is something that was just sort of you would get bored after a while I think that you need to uh, to listen to Josh again and uh, yeah. uh, realize that there's so much there's so much more to this well we are out of time today Josh this has been absolutely fabulous and uh i it has been a pleasure to get to know you and i hope to continue our our friendship and to all listeners the uh i was able to see i had a tour of the uh, smithsonian's archives at american art it is a fabulous uh it's a fabulous facility it's a very important uh collection and of course it will become more important the more people use it Mm -hmm. uh so uh tell tell everyone who's involved in these uh these areas of research that it is available and it is part of our our national patrimony so uh again 
Josh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. really enjoyed it. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. And we will be back next week with another uh, episode of Museum Life. Until then, remember you can reach out to me by email at carol.bossard at verizon.net. I can't organize your emails, but I can certainly <laughs> respond, and I love to hear from you. Uh, or send me a tweet at, at MuseWrite. Until next week, this is Carol Bossard for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.